Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to the Bible is Lit podcast. Welcome back. Uh, today we're continuing our study in the hero's journey, also known as the monomyth. Shout out to Joseph Campbell for coming up with the terminology. And again, if you listen to the previous episodes, you know, we've connected this monomyth or this hero's journey archetype and mode of storytelling um, to Abraham and to Moses. Now we're looking at David. We also tracked this out in comparing different Bible stories to Luke Skywalker's narrative arc in Star Wars Episode 4. All of those episodes are up and live. So if you want to scroll through our past episodes to get caught up, go ahead and do so. It would be a good time. <clears throat> but getting into David. So David, right, uh, to start with our typical beginning, right? We have some type of ordinary world or we have some type of humble beginning for our hero. So David, typical the monomyth, um, he's a farm boy. He's out looking after the sheep in a shepherding family. And now contextually, what we can tell from that is this wasn't the only enterprise his family was involved in, but this was his charge. It seems that they were involved in a lot of different enterprises, a lot of different hustles. You know, he had a bunch of brothers in addition, but it was his charge, his task to handle the livestock at this part of his life, which insinuates that they probably had other tasks in other businesses that they were in as well. But that would go to the other brothers. But so we see him as this typical farm boy and we have, you know, so that sets us off in this ordinary world scenario. Um, and he's sitting there uh, doing this deal, just being a good shepherd boy for his father. And then kind of we cross over into his call to adventure, plus having a mentor character in kind of his initiation all work together when this prophet Samuel comes and anoints him. And so we also have some things that play biblically with Samuel in terms of the ability to see or discern rightly. So previously in Samuel's history, he anointed Saul, who is the current king of Israel. He anointed Saul as the king of Israel and things aren't going too well. Um, and so there's all kinds of myths or sorry, there's all types of types of motifs and patterns that go into how Saul um, is seen by Samuel. And part of that is um, he's described, if you look at the description, there's some keys in the narration there. If you look at the description of Saul, Saul is <clears throat> described as being, you know, taller, head and shoulders taller and good looking uh, than his counterparts. And so the subtext is that Samuel might have missed the voice of God and what he was telling him in terms of how he saw Saul looking at the outward appearance and then being wrong and the kingdom kind of going off the rails with Saul in charge. And so then this is when Samuel anoints David as the next king or the next probable king, even though while Saul is still reigning as king, it is this ability for, or this opportunity for Samuel to correct his vision or have the Lord correct his vision 
And then you go in and you look at some of the descriptions of David. And David is also described as ruddy or good looking, but he's described much differently than Saul. Um, But regardless of all that, Samuel comes in as the mentor, gives David this initiation, but he's still sort of just sitting there being a good little shepherd boy for his family. And then it's described a little bit later in that chapter that um, King Saul is just having having anguish. And then he just, he tells his counsel, he's like, is there anybody in our little kingdom that can like come play some music for me and soothe me? I have anxiety, all this stuff's going on. And it ends up being David who comes and plays for him. And then shortly after, so we have this picture of David as the skilled musician. He's in the house of Saul playing music for him, yet this is before Saul has the knowledge that David has been anointed the next king of Israel. And so shortly after that, then we have David's big initiation, which is his battle with Goliath. And there's a ton of symbolism that happens in this story Again, David is not a soldier. He's um, not really qualified in battle. He's not, he's not trained like some of the other soldiers are. He goes into the battle. You know, the armor he is given to protect himself is not, does not fit him. So he chooses what he, he's used to using. And he's like, hey, I've, I've got all the skills. I've been taught all the skills that I need to do this work from being a shepherd and running my father's house or working in my father's house, rather. So um, he goes into battle with the giant, the Philistine Goliath, who the Philistines in this sense represent that archetypal enemy, that thorn in the flesh of Israel. They seem to always be doing battle with the Philistines in this part of the history. So it's kind of like the arch enemy, and it's like the lead warrior of their arch enemies. Um, David's just like, I'm going to take him down. And he goes, he takes him down, he slings a stone into the giant's forehead and cuts off his sword, or cuts off his head with his own sword. And so he gets this sword of Goliath, and the head of the Goliath sort of like symbols, um, cutting off the head or cutting off the thoughts, cutting off the doctrine of the enemy and then in, in exchange, getting the sword or getting the power. And then this, of course, builds David's reputation into this crazy warrior king that we see. And so at this point, David passes that test. He's initiated. And so he's no longer the shepherd boy sitting in daddy's field tending to daddy's sheep. He is the warrior who slew Goliath, and then this leads into his upward political trajectory that we see later in the story. And there's an interesting part, though, of David and Goliath's stories. Like, we don't get a whole lot of details about how it all went down. And so part of how these narratives work, especially when we're looking at comparing this to the monomyth or the hero's journey is what details we don't have because in these, these ancient stories, the ancient near Eastern literature in which the Bible is categorized, the purpose, the authors would purposefully leave out details in order to create tension 
that was supposed to create a deeper meaning. So something to consider when you're reading that story is our, like what details are left out. We have a battle scene, but it's not a super descriptive battle scene. And it seems to point to this upward trajectory of David's political career. <clears throat> and so at that point, David, you know, develops this reputation as a warrior uh, and... Now he's taken into King Saul's court. At that point, um, he he ends up marrying King Saul's daughter. Daughter. So you know we have this initiation going on. Now David has crossed the threshold, so to speak, and he's in another world. He's in the king's court. He is no longer this little farm boy, like I said, working in daddy's fields. He's you know, he's part of the elite. He's, he's working for the king at this point. And he ends up marrying the king's daughter. So now there's this, you know, you could look at it politically. Did he really love Saul's daughter, Michal, or not? I don't know, but you could look at a political move because there seems like in the narratives of Chronicles and Samuel, where we get the parts of David's story, David seems to move. Everything's politically motivated. He never talks. There's never a description of him, hardly, except when he's playing for King Saul in his court before Saul even knows who he is. There's there's almost never a description that David of David as just like an innocent actor in terms of how he moves and how he's described. Everything David says, everything David does seems to be pointing to a calculated political move that will push him, <coughs> excuse me, further up the chain when, um, in terms of his kingdomship or um, his political power. And then we're left with the question like, is this God's hand? at play in all of this or is David manipulating the system and trying to climb the ladder himself or is it a mixture of the two and the text doesn't really point to one or another again we're just left with a bunch of subtext but what's beautiful about the way these stories are structured and then kind of how the bible as a whole formulates this photo mosaic of rich history and culture is that we have these political snapshots of David in the historical books, in the Samuels and Chronicles books. And then we have Psalms where you see David, the poet, David, the man, David, the father, David, the husband, David, the dude who is not operating politically. He was being super vulnerable with his emotions and just we get this intimate portrait of a dude who does not have all things figured out. Um, so you get this contrast when you compare David in the Psalms to David in the historical books, which then continues to beg that question. And that's why this fits into that category of wisdom literature. It causes you to come back and read it and meditate upon it to find deeper me deeper meanings truer truths and then sometimes truths you thought were true turn out to be false or they were limited because of your own cultural perspective or understanding <clears throat> so david's moving up saul gets worried because now saul knows about the fact that samuel anointed 
David is the next king, but David hasn't become king. David hasn't ever tried to make a move against Saul other than potentially, you could say, him marrying his daughter was a way to like, oh, he's trying to protect himself. Right Now that he's my son-in-law, I can't touch him. Well, Saul doesn't matter at this point. Saul becomes self-righteous, and he's in go mode trying to kill David. So it's this weird aspect of like David has won over, right? He's married Saul's daughter, and Saul's son becomes his best friend. And then in addition to that, people are saying, you know, Saul, Saul's, you know, Saul's slate is thousands, but David is ten thousands, meaning um, David is better on the battlefield. David is better at vanquishing enemies and actually getting the real work done for the kingdom, whereas Saul is just the figurehead. So this idea that, um, you know, Saul might be the leader technically, but David is actually the leader in terms of who the people trust and who the people look up to, even though he doesn't have the title of king yet. So <clears throat> we move into this... Um, sort of approach or sort of another test phase of the hero's journey where now David is exiled or David is in the underground in some senses, literal underground in that he's hiding out in a cave with his guys and they're starving. And then he goes to a temple and asks to have anything to eat. And all they have is the, the show bread that's only reserved for the high priest. And he ends up eating that. And there's a whole nother can of worms that we could get into for that. But the point being is he's in exile. There's another test. There's another ordeal that he's going through. He goes into a cave. Saul ends up dying. And now coming out of that space, David emerges right now as the new king. So there's that crossing the threshold, right? The initiation, the crossing of the threshold. Now we have this emergence from this underground or the transformation. The full transformation has taken effect. It just It's like Luke Skywalker, the little desert farmer, to discovering he has powers in the forest, to when we get to episode six in the Star Wars trilogy, the original trilogy, you have Luke, the full-scale Jedi, walking in all of his power, and there's a similarity across over there if you listen to the Star Wars episode. Um, but yeah, you have David emerging now in all of his power that Saul is done. Or Saul is dead. And so now we're setting, you know, the transformation has happened. So the return for David isn't a literal return home. The return for David is... I'm returning home or the return part of his story is now that I've attained the thing that God had promised me or nor that I, now that I have done the thing that <laughs> I've been anointed to do, I'm going to take my political power. I'm going to take my wealth. I'm going to take all the resources I have and I am going to use them to reestablish a place for the kingdom of God. In this sense, I'm going to build a tabernacle. I'm going to build a temple in Jerusalem. I'm going to build a temple for God, a place for God to dwell, a permanent home, not like Israel had been at this point, a thousand years of wandering around in tents, a mobile God creating temporary tabernacles. Now he says, I'm going to establish a home for God permanently here. And that is the return process that David goes through. And David, much like Odysseus in the return part of his journey, it takes the entire 
rest of David's life to make his return. And if we compare that, you know, to the Odyssey, you know, Odysseus leaving the Trojan War takes 20 years to get back home. It's a similar deal in David's story. He spends the rest of his life trying to build a temple, trying to get enough money, enough wealth, trying to create enough peace by warring with other nations and protecting his own people to where he can build the temple and then he dies before it happens. So it's this attempt to return home, but in David's case, which we can compare this to Christ, kind of like with Moses too, um, because David has transformed, he doesn't necessarily have a same return home to go to, but his return is his spiritual center. His return home is he's returning to his spiritual home. In this sense, he's trying to build a temple for God. He's trying to make a place for God. And that's kind of the part of his return, his journey. You know, we see in the Moses story, Moses doesn't return back to Egypt because he was a slave in Egypt. Um, His people were slaves in Egypt, so he doesn't have a home to return to. So he's trying to return, right, crossing of the threshold into the promised land. (coughs) The second crossing of the threshold for Moses, because his first crossing of the threshold in the monomyth archetype and all the steps we're looking at, First crossing of the threshold for Moses would be the Red Sea. Uh, But at the end, it's Israel crossing the Jordan River and getting into the promised land. But Moses not being able to go, he dies on the mountaintop. You know, and so there's a symbolism of this. His return is actually just turned back into the womb or the bosom of God, which is what him dying on the mountaintop would symbolize. And so we have this established in the patterns of the um, Jewish storytelling that is going on here. Because these are people who have been exiled, they don't have a home to return to, so their culture, so their return home, their heritage is the spiritual home, the spiritual center that they are trying to establish and manifest on the earth. (coughs) But a few things just uh, to, to pull out as we finish up David's part in this hero's journey is so David becomes the king. There's the transformation. He emerges from the cave. Saul dies. And now David is the new king. There's this era of prosperity for Israel. Yet David has to protect that prosperity through violence. And so that begs the question, you know, is is David this great ruler that everybody, you know, the, the way we perceive him, or is are all these uses of violence and things that he does in order to keep the kingdom prosperous, is this an invitation from God for him to go about it a different way, go about it a different way, and instead he chooses what he knows, which is violence, because remember, His whole political career, even though God establishes it, his whole political career begins through an act of violence, right? He's anointed by Samuel the king. He did nothing to earn that. He's just being a good little farm boy, taking care of his father's sheep. And then this random crazy dude known as a prophet comes and says, oh, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Cool. He's like, what do I do in the meantime? He's like, I don't know. God God will sort it out. Just keep doing what you're doing. So then 
you know, what launches him into the, the limelight or the political cultural spotlight is when he goes and kills Goliath again. So he's been established politically through an act of violence. So he has to continue to keep himself in that place through violence, constantly at war, constantly at war. And then he ends up going into his test with Bathsheba. To me, this is like his final test or one of the final tests um, one of, in a really well-known story because he turns to violence against one of his own in this sense. And so he sees Bathsheba. So his people are out at war. Again, they're always out at war. But at this time, David stays home. He's going to send his people out to war, but David stays home. And there's a whole can of worms again. And you'll hear me say that a lot with these stories because they're so rich, they're so multifaceted, and they're so layered that you could spend years just looking at one nuance in this story. So we're trying to look at big picture. We're trying to look at the meta narrative. But I'll just say there's a whole other layer. There's a whole other onion of symbolism between or behind David being at home while his people are out at war. So David's at home. He sees this lady Bathsheba bathing on the roof, you know, and we might know the old Leonard Cohen song, which been has been remade and repopularized. Hallelujah. It takes the, the song starts with um, David, you know, they, a, an allusion to David in this scene. He sees her, he inquires about her. Uh, she ends up in his chambers. Um, her husband happens to be one of his men that's out fighting in the battles right now. David has his way with her, and um, then he stages, he basically stages a hit on her husband, more or less, tells his commanders to move that dude up to the front lines, and her husband is killed. Um, and then there's a whole other list of consequences that happen as a result of that. But what that's meant to symbolize is like, Bathsheba, in this sense, is like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Bathsheba is something that David takes through use of force rather than turning back to God and using. But we can apply this one instance to how David runs the kingdom. Is he going out and taking things through force in a way for himself, even though there's blessing behind it, because Bathsheba, when he takes her, she ends up becoming his wife. <laughs> um, and then Solomon, the famous king, is the son that comes out of that union. So God still blesses it, but it's through the actions of something David took. So the question I'm left with is if David chooses a different way to establish his kingdom, God still blesses that. And maybe this is the whole invitation God is giving David is you don't have to fight for me. Let me fight for you. Remember back when you were a shepherd boy living in your daddy's home and Samuel the prophet just showed up on your doorstep. And so anyway, we get to the end of David's life, right? The end of his journey, the return home. And he dies before he's able to build a temple. And so as a result, um, 
God says, you are, you've been a man of violence your whole life. I'm a God of peace. I'm a God of rest. So your son, Solomon, which is the fruit of his union with Bathsheba, the, the woman, the wife he took, or in this case, the knowledge of good or knowledge of evil that he took outside of the Lord's counsel, right? That, that son, the fruit of that is going to be the one who is establishing the temple, right? Not David himself because he's a man of war. And so there's this parallel between him and Moses, as we talked about a little bit earlier. Moses dies on the mountaintop. We talked about the symbolism between like, like that representing like a spiritual home or the mountains representing closeness, union with God in that sense. <clears throat> in this sense, the connection between David and Moses is David wanting to establish the temple is great. It's a beautiful heart. But who David became in order to get to that point, he would not be able to exist peacefully in the temple, in the culture, or establish a culture of peace because who he has had to become <clears throat> in some ways is diametrically opposed to a God of peace and a God of rest. <clears throat> At the same time, Moses, he could not go into the promised land because he has been a dude who has been in exile his whole life. He was a slave. Then he lived in exile. Then he took a group of slaves and exiles and they wandered in the wilderness until finally they got to the, the door of the promised land and God takes him out. And so there's some symbolism there between God allowing Moses to die, something Moses didn't die and God just took him up to heaven. And then there's this other theory that actually... Um, Actually, Sigmund Freud came up with this one, but um, there's this theory that Moses was murdered by his followers or Moses was mar murdered by the people of Israel. And then out of the guilt of the murder of their leader, they wrote like they took his words and then said a bunch of good things about him. I don't know if that's true or not. It's just interesting to look at. But Moses <clears throat> dies before he sees the reception of the promise of the thing God has given him to do. So it, it sets up this pattern where you could be someone who is moving forward the work of God in direction. You could be a carrier of the story, but you might not see the fruit or the ending of the story in your lifetime. Moses because of how he was raised, because of how he grew up, because of what he had to do to be a leader to those people may not be the best person or may not be, be even able to exist peacefully in that promised land, even though that is the thing he desired. And so there's a connection between him and David in that way that David could not exist in a kingdom of peace, even though there's a lot of prosperity. He's had to obtain that and maintain that by the edge of the sword, and so God says, and you're not going to build my temple. Your son is going to build my temple and he's going to be a man of peace. So, and that kind of shores us up in connecting the story of David with the monomyth, the hero's journey and the different parts of it.